How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, so delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing, with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Our dwarves have no Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now. And then return to fully appreciate to this bump and a tragedy. I once saw a guy put a fish in a bottle. Then he corked it, sealed it tight, and threw it to a baby octopus. And the octopus, he felt his way all around that bottle. And in less than two minutes, he got the cork off, slid inside, and ate the fish. And the moral of this story is... We're the fish. The following movie is rated R. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and monthly dives into the B-movies of yesteryear. Tonight, we're continuing our series of commentaries for commercial-slash-critical flops with the 1998 nautical monster movie and cable mainstay, Deep Rising. Personal favorite. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today are... My co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Um, what now? And Jamie. The studio thought that I was too recognizable from Goldeneye. <laughs> Rated R for... No, get out of here. I'm just going to play the part of IMDB facts for the, <laughs> the rest of these commentaries. <laughs> and we'll get to my favorite piece of film trivia of all time. <laughs> no, no, that guys person, spoil it. they're they too won't... far known for the movie we're making. Don't let all the good stuff out. They won't stay for the commentary. Anyways, folks, last episode of Bop and a Tragedy, we covered Virus, a movie that critics and audiences seem to hate. I'm not a huge fan. Today, though, we're treading similar thematic water with Deep Rising, a movie that didn't wow critics or even make back half of its production budget. But, that said, this is, to me, the good twin when you compare Virus and Deep Rising. This is the one that's been locked in the lodge for 25 years. Both are films about boat crews discovering seemingly abandoned ships and having to deal with hidden horror, but Deep Rising is a movie I actually revisit fairly often. It's fun, funny, kind of clunky, occasionally gross. Uh, The real tragedy on this one is that mass audiences have let it kind of fall out of their databanks. Luckily, the kind folks over at Kino Lorber have put out a new special edition Blu-ray of the film, so... Maybe this one isn't so tragic after all, and we can all have fun watching it. Before we get down to business and start this commentary, I do want to go over the most fun part of the evening, the official drink. So this one, going along with the theme of Bop and a Tragedy, was a fucking pain in the ass. It was 
two ingredients, two, and I thought that should be simple. There's not even anything complicated with the preparation of this drink. Uh, let me go over the Tiffany Blue Sparkler and how you make it. One, you get one ounce of hypnotic liquor, chilled. Four ounces of any Moscato, chilled. You pour the hypnotic into a champagne flute, then you fill it with that four ounces of Moscato. Done. Simple. Should have been easy. I, I, I went to, there was one liquor store anywhere near me that had hypnotic. It said it was in stock. I spent an hour in this total wine and more looking for the drink, and apparently someone must have bought it minutes before I got to the store, and it just didn't show up in inventory that it had been purchased. Uh, it was also on the bottom of, like, their cordial shelf, hidden away. So I'm, I'm just, like, a, a lunatic prowling the brandy aisle, like, is it here? Maybe it's in the cognacs. Nowhere to be found. So, to my great shame, I had to find a substitute. In this case, I had to buy a bottle of Kinky Blue, which, uh, let's put it this way. If you go to the Kinky Blue website, instead of rewarding you with a normal, hey, are you over 21? There's a sign that says, hey, you over 21? And the options are nah or yes, with like 30 A's. <laughs> and I, I feel like either of those answers is wrong. <laughs> Uh, I, I felt like I, the second I put my hands on it, I got dirty looks. Uh, it's delicious, by the way. I, I, I could drink this straight. Uh, it's vodka with wild berries and mango. And it's colored blue to make it fun. This shit is delicious. Anyways, if you dump those two together, you get a kind of sea blue liquid that's uh, carbonated from the Moscato. I got uh, a Fos Marai... Dulce Real, you can tell I drink wine all the time. Sparkling wine, Moscato. It came in the fanciest glass. So, in my mind, this is a simple drink. You have blue, like the ocean. Bubbles rising from the deep of the glass. See what I did? Deep rising. Deep. Folks, uh, we can cut past all the bullshit about the theme of the wine and how it kind of goes in with the party that all the crew folk are having at the start of the film. This shit is just a tangy, tropical delight. It is delicious. <laughs> You got paid off by the Moscato people, didn't you, Cody? I don't even like wine, but this is good. Oh, man. This this is actually a very easy-to-make drink and delicious. I don't know what it'd be like with a hypnotic. I think that one's more pineapple than mango. But there you have it, folks. The Tiffany Blue Sparkler. Box Office Pulp recommends getting trashed on these while watching Deep Rising. <laughs> I like how procuring the ingredients for that was your own personal West Studi being eaten by a giant squid. It was a nightmare. Ugh. I might still be there. I'm afraid I'm going to wake up and be in like their bathroom like I just passed out from anger. <laughs> the mental image that conjures, Cody. <laughs> so, I'm assuming everyone at home at this point has a delicious drink in front of them. We're about to put on Deep Rising. Mike will count us down. When he hits go, we're going to provide a commentary for the film. If you want to join along, you can cue the movie up on your TV. It's probably playing on TNT right now. Uh, I can't help you out on the commercial breaks, but, man, that's life. So, Mike, would you do us the honors of starting off this commentary? Yes. And I just want to um, remind all the folks at home that per Bop in a Tragedy, we do things a little bit differently now than usual. And what I want you to do is take Cody's drink. I want you to just throw it out the window. You don't, you don't, you don't need the liquid in it. Just throw it out the window. Chuck it. Then take the glass, throw it down the ground, smash it into millions of pieces. Just broken Ooh. glass everywhere. Then what I want you to do, call your dog over. 
And then let's just see what happens. And that is starting our funny good time commentary off with animal cruelty. Because that's the kind of um, horrible vibe I bring. I would be I don't mad, like but I'm too involved with this delicious drink. <laughs> <laughs> Cody's drunk already, folks. I can't believe how delicious this fucking kinky blue is. <laughs> the barcode shaped like kissy lips. Anyway, don't do that one, folks. The one from, from the last commentary, the child drunk thing, go ahead and do that. Anyway. Yeah, who cares about kids? I'm going to, if you don't have kids, find one. Doesn't matter if it's yours. I'm going to count to three. <laughs> After I say three, I'm going to press play. We're going to have some Treat Williams. Are we ready? I was born ready for Treat Williams. Aye, aye, Captain. Ends and ends with the letter X. Okay. One, two, three. So, the real reason I wanted to do this as a commentary is specifically for the opening, like, 30 seconds of this film. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just going to log off afterwards. Uh, so, I don't really care about this opening little text blip. It's when we get to the footage of the sea creature prowling along the ocean floor. This backstory. Uh, a while back, I threw out my old TV and bought a new one. Like a 55-inch 4K Sony. Really nice TV. I spent money on it, and I was proud of it. Uh, and it's supposed to up-convert Blu-rays to, you know, near 4K quality. And I figured I had to test that. I went through my Blu-rays, and for some reason, I settled on fucking Deep Rising. I don't know why it An hadn't been in my choice. heavy rotation. I just picked that. I'm like, I remember the picture quality not being great. Let's see how it works here. Popped it in. This comes in. This distorted weird fisheye view of the bottom of the ocean on my big 55-inch screen. I'm standing like three inches away from it to get all the detail. <laughs> and it just, I, I don't know what it was, but I just like had a weird visceral reaction to this where it scared me. It was just terrifying to see this POV shot going all over these sunken ships at the bottom of the ocean, the crushing depths, and the way it moves suddenly and lurches, where it flies past all these things and slows down, almost like a squid propelling itself along the ocean. I don't know what it was. I wasn't drinking that day, I swear. But this gave me a hell of a case of the heebie-jeebies, and this opening just oh, was the most effective opening I think I've ever seen to a horror film. It really just grabbed me that day. It really is way more affecting than anything else in this movie. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of the highlight, yeah. I, I can't explain why it works so well for me. Maybe it's just the idea that <laughs> the ocean is such a scary concept, and this is a very subtle way of showing that like those are ships giant ships hundreds of people could be in those ships dead at the bottom of the ocean where either the pressure killed them the drowning killed them uh sharks ate them who knows okay i just want to interrupt the to talk about my book. favorite um shots is it treat uh, and i'll lose interest age uh goldsmith roaring rousing adventure score from the 90s playing <laughs> over with a sweeping shot of treat williams at the helm of his fucking ship is the playing height solitaire. of cinema to me i'm sorry poker it is it is a very heroic opening for a scoundrel character jerry goldsmith is as always the best uh, i miss is... adventure scores oh. yeah. This is peak Stephen Summers adventure porn. This is the moment I realized, uh, I'm going to like this movie, aren't I? <laughs> uh, so for background, Jamie, you watched this pretty recently for the first time. 
Yep, all three of these movies were uh, maiden voyages. Uh, so, so for me, I obviously didn't catch this in theaters. It came out like '98. I would have been eight years old. Uh, but it played. I remember on TV constantly. I think it was like Fox does a movie or Fox goes to the movie. One of those FX does the movies. I can't remember the name of the movie channel that was doing it. But this film was constantly on. Like I come home from school and they just have it on every single day. So that's where I was familiar from it. It just was always on cable. It was like a warm hug. You could always find it. it, it it's one of those movies that's so aggressively 90s, even if you haven't seen it, it feels familiar. Like it's kinda, It is kind <laughs> of comforting in that way. It's when you're like, I'm sure I saw this and forgot about it at some point. Uh, oh, let's run down the tomato stats on this for anyone curious. 29% in Rotten Tomatoes, average rating of 4.1 out of 10, out of 31 reviews, 22 Rotten, 9 Refresh. Critic consensus, none. They didn't have enough, I guess, to build one. 42% of audiences liked it. Oh, that hurts. Because this one, unlike Virus, I stand by. I, I will wholeheartedly <laughs> go to bat for Deep Rising. I won't say it's a great film, but it is a fun film. The, the heroism. <laughs> and look at this actually sells the idea of a storm so much better than virus i'm gonna shit on <laughs> really virus does. a lot here there's a the lot of movie, symmetry between the two movies there is even when they're on board the ship and you can't tell it's storming outside you have that image in the back of your head maybe it was realistic in virus that in the center of a hurricane it'd be calm but that's not the visual storytelling that's going to sell people on the horror of the situation putting a boat in a big cartoony storm the entire time it might not be realistic, but yeah, they're going to remember, oh shit, it's storming and boats are rocking up and down. And it's wet. There's a question. So are we in Canto Bride all of a sudden? <laughs> yes. Do we want to keep a running count of different plots, or can we not count that high? <laughs> Cody's too drunk for this, Mike. <laughs> right, this is like Independence Day on a boat. I'm pretty sure we're already up. This may be the eighth plot we've already been introduced to, and we're a minute and a half into the film. We've got the monster we've been introduced to. We have the ship crew, although we haven't met the bad guys really of the ship as much. We know they're you know, going to be up to something, so that's their own plot. The boat itself has its plot. There's all the partygoers. There's Fomka Jensen's plot. Uh, the boat captain's, or not boat captain, but the boat owner's plot. A lot of stuff going on. Jamie, you had mentioned it in the virus commentary that bad movies have a tendency to overplot. This one, though, even though there's a lot of stuff going on, I don't think they screwed it up. I think it means, hey, even when there's not a monster around, characters have motivation to be doing different things, and we understand why they're turning on each other or not helping each other. I, I think it actually provides good motivation for all the characters, and everyone's goals are simple and understandable enough where it's not a distraction. They don't have to spend 20 minutes of exposition to get you to understand why so-and-so is being a dick. What's funny is I'm like, this movie would be so much better if they just chilled the fuck out with like 800 different things going on. <laughs> you like Virus, too, though. Get out of the, my podcast. You're damn right I did. <laughs> he is still the down. captain, Cody. Uh, uh, I think that's kind of... I can't believe I'm about to say this word. The genius of Deep Rising <laughs> is like you talked in the previous commentary about how virus kind of pulls for the from dusk till dawn twist but fails miserably. This 
very much succeeds in just being like fully selling you on this being a high adventure at sea, almost noir movie at times, and then just pulling the rug out from under you and being a monster movie halfway through. And that's what makes it so unique. Like you, it would be one thing if you scaled all of this stuff back and just had the main plot. Like, that would still probably make for a solid movie, but I find all the intrigue is what makes it so interesting. Like, you get to see all of these characters and all of these intersecting storylines that have no fucking business being in a stupid Stephen <laughs> Summers monster movie. Uh, an hour and to- a half long movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like seeing the weird mishmash of all that, like it shouldn't work. And you can argue on whether or not it does, but it's very unique. I I, I appreciate the balls. This is, well, this is discussing Stephen Summers. Stephen Summers fucking loves old movies. He loves old Hollywood. He lives and breathes old adventure movies and old universal uh, horror films. See Van Helsing. Exactly. <laughs> now, that leads us to arguably the masterpiece that is The Mummy, but here's the other... I won't argue that. I think The Mummy is his best film. No, uh, 100%. I wasn't bit like, Mummy is a fucking masterpiece in my opinion. Um, he could rest in his laurels. He just had to go keep... He just had to keep making other stuff. But, um... <laughs> Deep Rising is Stephen Summers making an old adventure monster movie from, like, the 40s, 50s, kind of the 60s. Now, hey, Kano, just, I forget you looked like <laughs> fucking Colin Farrell back in the 90s. Oh, my um, God, it's really so does. close. It freaks me out. Um, hey, guy from last movie. <laughs> hey, it's, this is what he got up to beforehand. He got washed this... out to sea and then ended up in a gang of mercenaries. Cliff Curtis is like, it wasn't bad enough last time. What if I just went back out and removed my <laughs> tattoos? That's why I still say we should make the third movie Sunshine and then we just do fucking Cliff Curtis on vessels of some kind. Look, um, I don't need people to convince me to talk about Sunshine. I fucking love Sunshine. <laughs> um, so speaking of these movies having ridiculous casts, fucking Diamond Hanzu in the 90s. Jason Fleming, Kano. Look, um, we have so many great characters in here. Uh, before we get too far from the, the point that was originally brought up, I did have in my notes, uh, just we have so many different factions in this movie. I, I actually, unlike Mike here, I, it really works for me. I love that we have one group that's just trying to navigate the storm and wants to deliver the group and get out alive. We've got one group that wants to sink the cruise ship and get their money. We've got one that's trying to get away with sinking the ship. We've got uh, one that's trying to just steal petty money and is unaware of these other plots, but has to survive them all and play off of them to survive. And all of them have the same goal of surviving the monster attack, but then their individual goals really put them at odds with each other. And I love the complexity. It makes the movie feel very busy in a good way, very active. It's not like you hit slow moments in this film. It's fucking jam-packed. I, okay, I just want to defend my position for a second. I, <laughs> You're wrong all you want, it does not impact me. I, 
we, I know, but we, you still host the show. <laughs> but um, I like the uh the differing plots surrounding essentially what the what the cruise vessel is. It falls apart to me when you introduce the added intrigue of the guy who owns the boat having hired the mercenaries to then sink the boat because of insurance. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a bad plot. I'm saying at that point, I don't care about you introducing extended plots to the one that doesn't really matter anymore. That's when it becomes too Famke much Jensen, I, I will say, I think all the stuff Famke Jensen... Is is just there so she's not in the main cabin when everyone else gets killed. Yeah, pretty so much. So it's a lot of backstory to basically resolve one plot contrivance, and it doesn't do much for the rest of the story. Like they don't refer to it very much or make it matter. I'm frustrated with her character. We'll get to it more, but it's like I like Jansen's performance. I like how different personality-wise that character is, but I'm frustrated she doesn't have anything to do. At yeah. all. She's just oh, there no. to be a hot chick. Mm-hmm. And the movie, and she feels like she was written in, like, through reshoots. Yeah. It's, and, it's just and, very odd. The female characters, and uh, I don't... This is a tightrope for me, because I don't want to accuse the movie of, like, being racist or anything, but the way they treat the minority characters is maybe a little off. Awkward. I think, uh, yeah, he like, oh man, Black Guy is pretty much the first one to die of the crew. Maybe not the very first. I can't remember anymore. And I just watched this the other day for notes. Uh, but then like the Asian woman is also, free, I think chronologically the first one to get killed off of the main crew, which sucks because she was like actually an interesting character in own right for the small amount of screen time she had. Yeah, I think they're almost going with like a Janet Leigh Lee thing with her with that. Kind of making but, a surprise. Yeah, but it just ends up being more insulting than anything else. Yeah. So again, I don't want to say outright that Stephen Summers was making a racist film like, ah, let's kill the Asians. I, I just think that in retrospect, it looks a little off. Yeah, just well, people just no thinking. Yeah, people were just not keeping an eye out for that kind of stuff yeah. back then. It was a bummer because there was like a fairly diverse crew. If you look at this, there's a black guy, we have an Indian guy, we have a Native American, uh, Asian woman, one woman <laughs> besides her. <laughs> Like there, there's a mix of people on this boat. It's not just all Treat Williams's second black guy. If it was all Treat Williams's, believe me. Crisis of Infinite Treats. Maori guy. So I say, do you agree, Treat Williams, the poor man's Jeff Bridges, but the rich man's Bill Pullman? Oh, interesting. I always thought of him, and this is just because the movie trivia mentioned that Treat Williams was a replacement for Harrison Ford when he turned down the movie, which makes a lot of sense. If you watch this, it's like, hey, they wrote, they, they basically wrote Han Solo as the main character. Oh, yeah. And then when they could cast yeah. Han Solo, they're like, who else can we get? Treat Williams? Close enough. However... That's not to mock Treat Williams, because I love his character here. He wholeheartedly it's... commits to the role, as goofy as it can be. Oh, if if Deep Rising did not contain Treat Williams or this character, it falls apart completely. Right. He's kind of smarmy, but he's charming. Like, he's he's an asshole you don't hate. And that's tough to do. It's very tough to do. You have to have a light touch to make that work in a movie. 
And it's rare to have a movie where literally everyone is kind of a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if I may back really up a unique second. about it to me. Oh, yeah. If I can back up just a second. Uh, when they were beating the shit out of uh, Kevin O'Connor, uh, Joey Pantuki's character, <laughs> someone in that group, apparently they said, was way too enthusiastic and actually beat him to a pulp. Like, he had bruises <laughs> all over his chest. And it was Damn you, West Studi. They talked about it later, and they said, like, yeah, they were all actually really good friends with each other. Like, they hung out after the, the filming for the day and stuff. They were friends. So Summer was like, boy, I'd really hate to see what would have happened if, like, one of those guys had a grudge against him. <laughs> um, but going back to my point from 20 minutes ago. Sorry, yeah, whatever it was. Um, uh, I was talking about uh, Summer's love of, like, old adventure movies and shit, which is what brought right. us The Mummy, but... You can kind of tell this was his first crack at making that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Because he really is aping the structure of, of those films. But he toned down how much he's aping the structure of that for The Mummy. Where here he's really going for it. And those old movies, essentially every act was a completely different film. Yeah. Um, but Summers didn't yeah, quite... Yeah, compare the very first scene of King Kong... 33 to anything on spider island yes or skull skull island sorry and what what summer is kind of i don't think like he aped it without remembering that the reason those movies were structured in that way is because they couldn't release a 20 minute long monster movie and they could not afford a monster for more than 20 minutes <laughs> so when it came to the mummy he pared everything down a lot more and structured it more um, where it still felt like an old movie, but one that could actually do stuff that it wanted to do. Here he has yeah. almost a... Um, a, a it, it ends up feeling more like a disaster movie that doesn't really end up like a disaster movie. Very, very much so. Yeah, that's right on the money. Poseidon Adventure type deal? Yeah. So now that we've done all the discussion of the film structure, I should have started with this. Let's let's just do a quick rundown of the individual talents involved in the film so everyone can freely reference them. One, we have director and writer Stephen Summers of The Mummy fame. Uh, before this, though, he'd done work on The Adventures of Huck Finn, a live-action Jungle Book, Oliver Twist, Tom and Huck, this one really jumps out to me because this is really the first time he got into the horror genre, which would be a big mainstay for him. I mean, after this, he had The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, Van Helsing, Odd Thomas. Not a horror film, but he also had G.I. Joe Rides of Cobra, which is action. This is action adjacent. He really made the jump into action horror filmmaking, and it defined his career with this movie. The stuff uh, that he wanted to do, too. Yeah. Uh, let's see, the director of photography is Howard Atherton. The second unit director, this blew my mind because I never realized this until I watched the special features on the Kino disc, it's Dean Cundy. Really? really? Yes! Uh, apparently this was like his first time doing second unit. Uh, he was a friend with one of the guys who was involved in the movie, and they said, hey, we need a second unit director, why not you? So he, he did kind of his learning experience. Wow. Yeah! Cundy, the man who can. <laughs> uh, our editors, we have a pair here Bob Duxay and John Wright 
The budget was $45 million. The box office return was $11 million. Came out January 30th, 1998. Oh, and as we mentioned before, music by the uh, eternal Jerry Goldsmith. Plus our cast rundown. Uh, we've already said Treat Williams about a million times, so people are aware that he's in this film. And a million more to just, soon to come. Just keep throwing them out. Uh, Jansen was interesting because the studio didn't want her at the time. She thought they, they thought she was too recognizable because of Goldeneye, which is hilarious to me because they said they wanted Harrison Ford. <laughs> and why wouldn't you so, want someone recognizable in your fucking movie? Right. I, I don't. I, I think it was a budget thing, if I were to guess. Uh, so I don't understand. This has been reported by several different groups. I believe Summers might have mentioned it on the commentary for the film as well. That doesn't make it true, but it's been reported enough times where I kind of accept it. Uh, so their first choice was Claire Forlani. Uh, she dropped out of the movie after three days due to air quotes, creative differences with Stephen Summers about her character. Why am I in this movie at all, Stephen? Uh, that might have been it. Even Fomka came in, she's like, man, I just don't want to be a beautiful girl all the time. And he's like, well, you can you can be an ugly girl in your spare time, but for our movie, you're the romantic lead, so <laughs> deal with it. Oof. Yeah. Uh, that, one, that one came out bad, but he's kind of saying it in a joking way on the commentary. I and understand he what, he, what he means, it's just bad wording. Yeah. yeah, and that was my paraphrasing too. I probably made it sound worse than it was. Yeah. Uh, flashing on the screen occasionally in this scene, you will see uh, uh, Anthony Hield, which, oh my god, that guy in my mind is just synonymous with, do not trust this man. <laughs> <laughs> He's always a weasel. It's just shorthand. It's like, you guys remember in the last action hero? With like, you can't trust him. He killed Beethoven. Same same thing. You just when you see this man on screen, you know he's up to no good. Uh, if you recognize him but can't place where, he's Doctor Chilton in the Hannibal films. Uh, he was the really Weasley guy who screwed over Nick Cage in Eight Millimeter, the evil lawyer. Uh, let's let's put it this way: one of his first roles was in a film called Teachers in 1984. His character was named Narc. <laughs> So besides that, we also have Wes Studi, uh, Cliff Curtis, Trevor Goddard, Jimon Hewson. Uh, I always rush to his name because I'm saying it wrong and I've just never Diamond learned. Hanzo. Exactly. And, Diamond uh, Joe Hanzo. Diamond <laughs> Joe. The D throws me off. I, and the DJ just makes me an idiot. Uh, and, just and, call him uh, DJ. DJ, you know. Like one of those guys who just, eh. <laughs> Plus Kevin O'Connor. Kevin, uh, in my mind, is the MVP of the movie because he has to have oh, the irritating yeah. sidekick role and make him fun and lovable. Uh, it works so well that he also just kind of became Summers' go-to sidekick character. This You'll see him in Van Helsing as Mindbender. Yeah. <laughs> role of a lifetime. What uh, I love is O'Connor's inclusion makes this an accidental Lord of Illusions reunion. I know. They mentioned that. Uh, they interviewed him in one of the special features for the, the keynote DVD, and he mentions that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to work with Fomka again. So this scene. This, to me, is very important to the movie. And it's not just because it's hilarious to see someone killed on a toilet and kind of crass. <laughs> to me, this is the key to understanding the tone of the entire picture. 
Uh, and Summer says the same on the commentary. They added this because they felt killing someone on the toilet lets you know that this is kind of a funny movie. It's horrific, but it's not taking itself too seriously. Exactly. Which is it's, a major difference from Virus. And exactly. I think this is what, what we're makes talking about stand. was missing from Virus, which is a tonal awareness on the part of the filmmakers. They have Summers knowing what it is, what he wants the tone to be, to be able to add that scene so the audience knows, okay, this is what you're supposed to think of these events. <laughs> it's going to be bloody, but it's also, you know, there's going to be some wink, wink, hey, we're in on the joke moments. I was just impressed with how he was able to have that kill work both ways. So if you were going into this movie blind, you could just interpret that as something going wrong with the explosion. Like, it's a monster kill that hides the fact that it's a monster kill. It never occurred to me that that could have been caused by the explosion. But again, I've been watching this movie for so many years, it just it's ingrained to me what it should be. Also, I love the fact that in the director's commentary, Summer is laughing his ass off when that woman is killed on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apparently he hadn't watched the film in like 20 years, so he was all kind of like, oh, what is this again? You know, re-experiencing re it. So <laughs> at least for him, the comedy still is uh, top notch. I wish Summers would have a comeback so fucking badly. I agree. I miss him. Yeah, like his, his misses far outweigh his hits. But God, could you imagine if he brought it home one last time? I will say this. I really love The Mummy. I really like Deep Rising. Uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for The Mummy Returns, although I can recognize that it is not an amazing movie. It is a fun one. Uh, I'm blanking out. Oh, G.I. Joe. Eh, I, I would leave that one. What does it accelerate? Yeah. No, there's things in G.I. Joe I like. And Odd Thomas, I thought was pretty decent, to be honest. I uh, I liked it more than I expected. So I would, I'd be willing to give Summers many more chances if uh, studios were willing to give him a couple more shots. You know, let him do something that's not going to go direct to video. Yeah. And honestly, the Achilles heel of Summers' movies is never the direction. It's always the screenplay, and the studio's approach to each of these movies. Like, you can't really blame him for Rise of Cobra all that much. It's fair. I think he does a good job getting his the most out of his casts. He can navigate tone pretty well. He can make movies that are fun and enjoyable, but still have darkness to them. The man's got a lot of talent. So uh -huh. one thing that's a little funny to me here is this film came out a year before Virus. Virus got delayed a year, so they are really kind of filming at the same time, coincidentally. But this one, really, pay attention to the storm the entire time. It's hard to miss. The storm is what they wanted it to be in Virus. It's, it's a character throughout all Deep Rising. Even though most of the film, they're inside safe from the storm. Just, just I don't know, that's so weird to me that they do a good job getting that in your head and pounding it there so you don't forget it any time, even when you're in the bowels of the ship, that the ocean is rising up around them. Well, that's what happens when you have a director who understands physical, uh, visual storytelling as opposed to just a guy who knows special effects. Yeah. I mean, not to insult Bruno, but like, yeah, you can definitely, 
as Mike said during the commentary, it's a lot of, oh, this is a first-time director moments. Yeah, Summer's <laughs> even his teeth at this point. Yeah. Even in the commentary, he discussed how in the Jungle Book, uh, a studio head saw some early footage of the snake from the Jungle Book and told him, hey, that looks so fake, it's not going to work. And he basically told him, well, don't, yeah, don't worry about it. When the special effects are in, I know what it'll look like. And sure enough, when they put the effects in, they had to tone it down a little bit because in test screenings, the snake was too realistic and was scaring children. <laughs> so the man did go in with an idea of what the special effects would be throughout his movie and how they would apply to everything, which is weird to say because, again, Bruno had an upbringing in that, but I don't know if he knew how to apply it to the film the same way Summers did. There were different points in their career. Different points, different amount of resources. Yeah. yeah. It's just strange because they had small bits of shared cast, like Curtis, uh, kind of a shared plot with the whole ocean thing, the shared idea of the storm, filmed very close to each other. Very similar pacing, too. It's just one of those weird cosmic coincidences where so much would be the same, and yet they weren't in any way related projects. Also, I want to know if you agree. This the crew of this ship is just the crew of the Serenity. I could see that. They need some bold ones. Like a borrow one from the last movie. <laughs> exactly, just another shared resource. <laughs> this is something I, I want to see. I'm going. So, I was gonna say I just want to see the three movies we're covering swap each other's resources to make like one Frankenstein movie, <laughs> one super B movie, the B plus film. <laughs> but you were saying, Mike. And that movie was called The Abyss. No. Um, uh, one thing just from a writing standpoint I, I love is making the sidekick character the one with the hot girlfriend. Yeah, oh, I love that. It's it's a very unusual choice. And it's fun. And it's Wash and Zoe. It immediately endears you to this crew you otherwise don't get to know that much. Right. Plus it allows uh, Treat Williams to go after Famke without seeming like a huge dick. <laughs> so we discussed this in the last commentary virus was partially filmed on the water because it's a water movie which really raised the cost and i think probably hurt some of their other production values since they had to spend so much on you know water filming here the whole movie was filmed in vancouver like there it's a lot of water scenes but those are done with miniatures they're done with sets they're done with water tanks they're basically done the way I would expect a, a reasonable studio to handle this kind of picture. Like, there's no reason to be on the real water for anything. We can handle all of this and control the elements. There's no reason. And the weird thing is, this artificial version of water is more more convincing than anything in Virus. Yeah. <laughs> By going fake, they got movie reel, which is, I'll take every time. That is some there-is-no-spoon shit right there. <laughs> yeah, paradoxically, uh, having the fake sets gave Summers the control over everything, which allowed him to make it kind of hyper-realistic style, not hyper-realistic, but more stylized and makes it feel real compared to the stuff that was real and felt fake. Movies, everybody. <laughs> you're You're more convincing with a 10-foot boat model than an actual boat on the water. All the sets, all the water effects, they're fucking so top-notch. It really makes you wish there wasn't a giant CGI monster that looked bad throughout the entire picture. <laughs> yeah. Like, why yeah. Why couldn't they have had viruses effects? God, take everything about this movie. 
swap out the squids for the aliens from Virus, you have an excellent fucking movie. Yup. Oh, yeah. Also, yep. going back to the screenplay, I I love how the hidden gun of this movie is them passing by the fucking jet skis. <laughs> <laughs> they also show the surfboard several times in passing shots, which will become a, an essential plot device later. Although that wasn't really planned, because they, they kind of made up that ending at the very last second. Uh, oh, one we'll thing get to the end. There's lots and lots to say about the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to go back just a second, I, I love the little visual storytelling here where the bad guys see the elevator and they raise their guns ready to fire on anyone who opens the doors. Because they don't know what's going on. There's just a bunch of blood. But we get a close-up shot of Treat Williams who looks legitimately heartbroken and sad for a second. He doesn't have to say anything, but it communicates so perfectly to the audience that this man does have a heart. He's worried that the doors are going to open, and they're just going to mow down these assumedly innocent people. And they communicate that with like a two-second insert shot. It's, it's all it needs, but it shows so much about his character, and I think it goes a long way to getting you to realize, like, hey, this guy's not all bad. He may have a bad attitude sometimes, but he's not heartless. He's not a monster. It's wonderful character work done in the easiest, fastest, most economical manner. And I, I respect that so much. Yeah, and it's such a great performance throughout the, the whole movie on, on Williams' part. He, ah, oh, it's such a goddamn shame he was never a bigger deal. I totally. know. Like, I wasn't kidding when I said, like, he's definitely the rich man's Bill Pullman. Like, he's got everything Pullman had, but he has energy and personality. Here we have another uh, extended comedy beat, which, honestly, I do laugh at each time. Just how stupid it is for them to waste all their bullets as trained mercenaries. But this extended, like, kind of look between <laughs> O'Connor and, and, and Treat, just, <laughs> what the fuck are these guys doing? Some of the comedy is so fucking good. And it is very, like... Uh, well, a lot of it's chemistry-based. It's just how the, yeah, it's like how the characters bounce off of each other. Although that, I mean, that's obviously a scripted bit and it works pretty well, but so much is sold just by the looks between friends. <laughs> God, we never Studi got a... a giant gun. <laughs> we never got enough of West Studi leading things. I mean, he's fantastic in everything he's in. He's still in stuff. Wasn't he just in Hostiles like last year? Yep. Looks exactly the same, too. Yeah. <laughs> And this is when I you remember Fonka Johnson is in this film. Yeah, she drops out for a long time. They could have they could have streamlined her plot. I'll agree with Mike. I think this is maybe one too many, and it ends up feeling like it's just kind of clutter to pad the time out. See, that said, ex- the movie is like one hours and thirty nine minutes long, so you know those extra couple of minutes make it feel like it's not too short. You don't want something that's only an hour twenty. See, I accept this as a subplot because this is the closest we'll ever get to seeing Fam K. Jansen play Faye Valentine. That's <laughs> all I can fucking think about whenever I see her in this movie. I Holy think it's shit, the dress. it is literally the same fucking performance and character, isn't it? <laughs> if only she was the one who gets killed on the toilet, it would be Maximum Faye. <laughs> no wonder this character is so endearing to me. <laughs> So if we can backtrack a little bit to the storm, and I'll shut up about the storm after this. As a location in a horror film, the storm is pretty much as good as it can get, right? It's dark, it's moody, 
Uh, it's visually exciting. Plus, it's got all the obvious perks you want in a horror movie. It naturally isolates all the cast from the outside environment. It gives them something to grapple with that's not the monster. It's kind of a personification of the struggle that's going on. All that kind of high-end baloney. But in this movie, we're lucky too, because since they're on a boat, they don't just have phones they can pull out and call the Coast Guard anytime. So they don't have to worry about cheating to find ways to keep the authorities or help from reaching their location. They're truly on their own and isolated and have to deal with this using their own resources and wits. And I, I really like that in a horror film where they don't have to have the obnoxious scene. They're like, oh, someone took all the cell phone batteries and dropped them into a blender. Ah, geez, that's inconvenient. So yeah, as storms go, I think this really makes a wonderful, perfect setup for a horror film. Oh, scruffy looking. What are you even welding over there? Not much. I, I I have no idea how, what she's trying to do here. This I'm is pretty not sure that vaginal. hole is still going to be there when you're done. She's just it trying looks, to heat the water. Yeah, she's she she looks like she's doing work. So I touched on this before, uh, with uh, Una Damon being like our first crew to die. Really, it's annoying because she's doing this pointless task. We can all tell it doesn't make sense. She gets pulled out to sea shortly after this. So when she doesn't even get like that cool of a death because she just kind of disappears before we can truly see the monster. Yeah. And it's frustrating because she has this relationship with uh, Kevin O'Connor, but he doesn't find out about it until way later in the movie, and he doesn't get much time to react to it. They they do pay it a little bit of lip service, but not a ton. Yeah, he cries. And, That's about it. Yeah, at least it's something. Like, they recognize the fact you that You forgot the character there. existed by the time they right? get around to it, though. That's the problem. The audience is like, why is he crying? Uh, yeah, it's just, they've got a great actress with actually a pretty good character. Like, she makes a good impression for the amount of screen time she has, and it it feels like it's kind of as a shocking gotcha moment to pull her, like you said before, that kind of psycho thing, before you expect. And in my mind, sure, it works that way. I was always surprised she got it that early. I thought she'd, like, pop back up with, like, a severed tentacle the first time I saw it. But it's a waste. Also, I want to say, Una Damon... Uh, I, I couldn't get it out of my head. Like, where do I recognize her from? She is the lab tour guide in the first Spider-Man from Sam Raimi. Oh, oh shit, she is. It. Yeah. Cuckoo Keen. <laughs> Super spider So there we go. It <laughs> took me forever to put together. I'm like, why do I know her? Uh, she has an awesome career. <laughs> just for that. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the biggest problem with me is just She's the most interesting character in the movie for her 10 minutes. It feels like if this movie were made in 2019, she'd be the main character. Yeah. It's almost uh, kind of a blessing and a curse for Summers. He did a good job making all of the characters interesting and have clear, defined personalities, even if they're not deep. So in a horror movie. Yeah, fake Colin Farrell. Uh, So when those characters die, you feel like, okay, no, fine. So when those characters die, you feel a little ripped off. Like, oh, I'm bummed he's gone. I wanted to see more of him. But it felt like he had more to do. It's almost like he's too good at drawing out minor characters and the people you would want to see more of, even though these guys are all assholes. That happens now and again. Like, certain people it's a are good problem too to have, I good. Think. Yeah, but 
there is a thing is like being too good at it where you're not aware that you're kind of letting the audience down when you make it an expendable character really fucking cool. Yeah. Especially when you, it's like she has like the some of the first lines in the film, so it's even more confusing. Right. The second person we're introduced to. And she can weld, apparently. That would come in use later. It's also kind of confusing logistically for the movie, not that it matters, but she's well outside the cruise ship. She's trying to repair their little boat, and a tentacle grabs and pulls her out. Then moments later, the tentacles go after not Colin Farrell, Kano. (laughs) I mean, I know it's a dumb thing to complain about the logic of this movie, considering the tentacles of this monster somehow reach, you know, hundreds of feet across this giant ship. Also, he just drank salt water. Oh, he spit it out. Uh... Like, it, it, yeah, it logistically Thank doesn't Australia. really make sense, but it's very frustrating that they're like, oh, let's go out of our way to show an extra kill. I'm sure that was one of those deals where like, hey, we need to spice the script up and keep it, keep it moving. Let's add a death or they didn't know what to do with her character. So, hey, let's just drop her off now. But still, uh, it's frustrating. It's a lot of wasted potential. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that definitely reads as... This was added in a rewrite. Like, I actually didn't find out until right before we recorded and doing a little last-minute research that uh, Robert Mark Common actually did a, like, right before shooting rewrite to this. Oh, really? That makes a certain amount of sense, because there was, um, like I mentioned before, the original actress for Fabio Jensen's character dropped out over creative differences. I can't find anything that says what those differences were. No one really wants to get into it much. Uh, Someone basically fa- just says, it didn't work out. That's all he says in the commentary. Yeah, to be fair, though, Claire Forlani also, I think, has dropped out of roles over creative differences a lot throughout her career. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hard to say how much is the movie and how much is Claire Forlani. Oh, yeah, you know this, is, I mean. this is all guesswork but it would make sense that a rewrite the last second would take place because apparently her character wasn't nailed down enough at the very last second where she felt comfortable keeping the role uh they had a very hard time casting the main bad guy because uh they brought in ethne healed after famke i think or, or not after but like right before her yeah like they were they were struggling to cast some of these spots and i think that would only happen if they were rewriting the character and they didn't know exactly who they needed he even said he took the role but they wanted someone much older, so he they they had to age him up slightly. So they were that desperate, like for, uh, just just give us Doctor Chilton, he's fine. <laughs> we have to film in like now. Just give us him. Yeah, it does definitely. Uh, a lot of little character moments make a lot more sense when you know that the guy who wrote the Fifth Element touched up the script. Hey, was that the legendary logo in the background? <laughs> Oh no, action figures. <laughs> <laughs> With their mini Gatling guns. This is what I love about this movie. The main characters are the bad guys that John McClane would kill in a Die Hard movie. Oh yeah. Brilliant. Characters randomly named after the chick from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we didn't think so, you would catch that reference. I just love how that's something that was rattling around in Stephen Summers' brain. And... <laughs> Great effects. How is that more over the top than him getting his head exploded in Guardians of the Galaxy? And they also murder like two other people the second after this happens, but you forget about them. And um, it's almost a Paul Verhoeven shot if there was just squibs. So, one, I mean, that's not a dummy. They actually just put a prosthetic in his head, which was fantastic. Uh, like, the cast and crew have photos of him on the day of just, like, posing and doing stuff while he's got the axe stuck out of his forehead. Uh, two, man, again, like, let's just murder all the minority characters immediately. Uh, three, I had a third point. The list is gone. Okay, oh, here yeah. we go. I found it. I found it. Uh, so, the studio wanted to make the f- movie PG-13 at one point. Um, and the filmmakers, Stephen Summers, basically said, yeah, I can't do this. One of my characters has an axe sticking out of his head. Like, that's that's R-rated. I love how all of our movies for uh, this series were almost PG-13, bafflingly. Yeah, so the, the studio gave them money. They told them, okay, here's some extra cash. Recut the movie, refilm around the deaths that you've already filmed, and let's see how it turns out. And once they did that for a while, they realized it wasn't working. The studio saw it, and they went, oh, this is shit. And they gave up. So they basically just wasted millions of dollars trying to remake the film, only to realize, uh, it's... we should have said something before the script was finished. So trying to remake your movie meanwhile it's filming, not... The best plan. Luckily for us, uh, I think we have a much stronger film because they went ahead and just added the gore effects in. Oh, like they yeah. didn't shy away from the prosthetics or anything like that. Like uh, later on, when we get the half-digested guy coming out of the tentacles. Boteen special. I if, yeah, I don't know if that would have made it in a PG-13 movie, but no, it's a standout no. moment in this film the way it is. I love how though it stayed R-rated. Ah, this was filmed by Kundi. They wanted him to do it because it was basically a ripoff of his uh, shot from The Thing. Yep. <laughs> Where he said, oh, I already knew how to do it because I'd already filmed The Thing. On, yeah. Um, Although, but, in Cundy's defense, he refers to it as an homage and not theft. Because he says everyone steals stuff from other people and it's just really just paying homage to them. And then Botine walked in angry and then ran off. <laughs> I assume. But I love how the studio kept it R-rated because... They realized, oh god, we have deep rising. We should at least have gore. We can at least ride the <laughs> gore train. If okay, if you cut out all the blood and guts from this movie, there would be really nothing left except for some jet ski action in the third act, and they would need a lot more of it for it to work. I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to see that movie. <laughs> jet ski, the movie. I'm sorry, Wave Rider, the movie. <laughs> Get it right. I have a feeling that Kevin O'Connor is just putting these movies because Summers just really enjoys being the shit out of them. He has a punchable face. Why Kinda the fuck does. isn't Kevin O'Connor a bigger deal? Yeah, why isn't he like a Doug Jones? Right, as Benny in The Mummy, really just the best character you love to hate. Oh, ever yeah, made. he's so memorable. Like, there are some characters that are assholes in horror movies, and you're just waiting for them to get theirs. Benny's that character where you want to watch him the entire time, and then you're still sad when he gets his at the end, but a little happy. You're mad Benny's not in the sequel. I am mad that Benny's not in the sequel. That's very true. That guy, somehow, uh, 
I, maybe it's the physical timing to his comedy. Maybe it's just that weird cadence to his voice and pitch. But Kevin O'Connor really stands out from everyone else and makes a grating fun sidekick. There's there's no one who can compare. And goddammit, at some point in film history, we got Kevin O'Connor in makeup, hunched over, yelling, Dr. Frankenstein! <laughs> as lightning cracked, and that's fucking delightful. Don't, don't tempt me to rewatch Van Helsing. I don't need that in my life. I haven't watched Van Helsing in a while. I would like to just, you know, just to do it. I wish I liked Van Helsing. But boy, I, we all just, wish we yeah. liked Van Helsing. It's fucking Van Helsing. Nothing should be better than Van Helsing, but it's not. And that's <laughs> the coolest like, premise of all time. Waters of Tartarus. I mean, Waters of I, fucking Tartarus. That I'm, is a movie where Dracula says Van Helsing while shouting down a hallway. And it's bad. I'm very mad we got opera frankenstein that's just not a thing i want <laughs> yeah with a still with a cool design so i can't i can't totally cast it off also if you do not want to go to van helsing but you still want peak ridiculous kevin o'connor you gotta revisit lord of illusions fucking oh, yeah. wizard that is yeah that is a show worth checking out so uh, that's uh, Clive Barker's kind of forgotten masterpiece. I'm very, very sorry. This is a Clive Barker movie. Magician, not wizard. Magician. Yeah, get it right. Because there is nothing more had? evil <laughs> in a Barker story than a magician. <laughs> it's very strange. Now that I know Dee Cundy was the second unit director, you can't now I'm really it. noticing how much of the film is really second unit. Which yeah. is true, I'm sure, for a lot of films. Like, you can't have the star in every single shot. And now we get some good gore. Look at the end of the It's always going to be second unit. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. But even simple stuff like the elevator changing floors, I mean, there's no way the first unit director is going to waste the time doing it. He's got stars to deal with. I do love the practical slime effect they came up with there. Just the frothy human skeletons that are laying around with eyeballs poking out. Oh, this movie is just guts porn. So this is an important scene. Um, while filming it, the studio hated the look of it. They said, wait, the rest of the film is really dark. Why is there a brightly lit hallway scene? This doesn't go with the rest of the movie. And they, they demanded that they recolor time it after it was done. And, of course, the DP said, no, fuck you, I made it this way on purpose. And the studio said, we're going to do it anyways. So they retimed it, they made it darker to high detail, and they made it blue to fit in with the nighttime kind of feel of the rest of the movie. And everyone who watched it said it was worse. What everyone that have even it, looks like? Uh, I don't know, you wouldn't have seen most of this, I'm guessing. So they went back to the original version. And... They they talked about it a little bit on the commentary, but the the DP basically came in and said, "Look, this is important to me. I want there to be modulation in color. Some scenes are going to be dark, and I want some scenes to be light. And I think that gives the audience different expectations. They don't find there to be a monotonous rhythm. You wouldn't play the same song throughout a whole movie. Why would you show everything the same lighting and color the entire movie? 
Which is a really good point, and I don't think we see that in a lot of films. They just kind of assume we want consistent tone, so they film everything in the same style. This is nice. It's a good break where all of a sudden a very memorable scene happens and is probably most memorable because we have this very bright setting that contrasts everything else we've seen. And then it goes right back to darkness in the sea. It's it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's something that was kind of a signature of a lot of 90s horror movies just here's a brightly lit room covered in entrails <laughs> one of the things thank I you say cube about that, yeah uh one other thing i want to say about that scene even though we've already passed it you'd have to rewind to catch this in the interview on the kino disc with uh, west duty he mentions he worked very hard to perfect his form with his machine gun so he could spit it in a circle while firing at the camera but not block his face at any moment <laughs> which is because if you go back and watch you will always see wes's face while he's firing his machine gun he moves it in a perfect circle so you always see his face that's the money maker he knows his shit best fighter since iron fist <laughs> i love how west duty is exactly what you want west duty to be All right, God, are we going to talk about the revelation we had about West Studi before recording? Oof. Uh, I don't have the song title in front of me, but while researching West before this movie, we found out the man has music credentials. Not well, he, he played music in a band, sure, but he has soul music credentials on a goddamn Vangelis song for a Blade Runner soundtrack re-re-re-release. The track is called No Expectation Boulevard. You can find it on YouTube. You'll you'll hear Wes in the background doing kind of a spoken word piece along with several other folks at different times. It's a hell of a thing. We have no idea why they made this. It's just an unproduced track from Blade Runner with spoken word over it. We're not sure that Wes knows that he's a part of... He may not have gotten paid. We want to find out if he's getting royalties, because he deserves them. Also, this track does not sound like it's Blade Runner at all. It's kind of like a drum and bass with a lot of extra shit thrown on top. No, Vangelis just wanted to release a fucking album, but really wanted money from a studio to do it. So, fuck it. Throw Blade Runner in the title. (laughs) So there's your fun fact for the day, folks. (laughs) You've learned something about Blade Runner, kind of. We're we're waiting for West Studi to reply. We did contact (laughs) West Studi. And uh, we're we're awaiting. I'm what? That's the hard-hitting journalism you will get here at the box office pulp studios. Good night and good luck. Do you think anybody's ever had West Studi sign a bison dollar? <laughs> no. What would his reaction be? That's what I want to know, because I feel like it could go either way. Yeah, I want to try. I, oh, I want him to lift it up, get a good look at it in the light, and say, Doys! Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Back to the film. One thing to watch from this point on, uh, Anthony Heal's character, in his mind while he was doing an interview, he talked about, he tried to piece together why the guy was acting the way he was, and he decided this was a man who lived a very safe life, and now that he's actually doing bad things, enjoys them? So he gets more villainous as the movie goes on, because he's just 
realizing he could have been this guy in a different life and is enjoying the role. Which is a weird bit of method acting, but I like it because the character really becomes very unhinged by the end, and this makes it seem a little more logical if you buy into that uh, little bit of acting thought. It's a very odd character. Also, we're about to get my favorite effect of the movie. The reason this movie exists, let's fucking face it. The slime from the the blob. The reveal. Oh, that perfect head turn. Check this out. Ah, Even with the bad CGI. That's such a... Still effective. It fucking holds up. It's an effect that goddamn holds up. I love that they left all of the lips, but the jaw is gone next to them. This is what I always say about effects. Like, no matter what era it is, no matter what toys you got in the toolbox, like, a good director can sell a goddamn effect. Man, uh, it's so gross. And there's something in my mind. In, in horror movies, typically if you lose a limb, you might survive for a scene or two, but that has you marked for death. So it's it's very disturbing when you see a character injured you know they're not going to have to live with it. But it's even worse because you know fate has picked that character to be totally gone. That guy was a little more gone than normal. It's worse than losing an arm or a leg. But just the, the, the idea that what if that guy survived with half his face melted off and he didn't have an eyelid on his left side or something. Ugh, that, that kind of disfigurement is, is terrifying to me. That's like how I always wanted to see the adventures of that guy who melts in RoboCop. <laughs> God. <laughs> Go I want to see him God. become the Toxic Avenger. Kill me! I am in love with Famke's hair. <laughs> God, Famke Jansen is an actress I've always felt so bad for, because I feel like... Because her most famous could've... character is a woman who strangles people with her legs? <laughs> <laughs> Second most famous, Cody. Oh, she, she just seems like... She seems like an actress who could have done a lot. Yeah. Instead, yeah. got a lot of roles that could have just gone to supermodels. Even her signature role of Jean Grey, like as fond as I am of a good chunk of the X-Men movies, she doesn't get a whole lot to do. No, it, it that happens when your big payoff movie is The Last Stand. Yeah, you can watch something like X2 where... There's not a ton of Gene, but she still kind of grounds that movie. Oh, yeah. Or just her um, ghostly self in The Wolverine, too. Yeah. And this shows that she can do a lot of different things. There's an actual performance here. (laughs) And much like Wes Studi, she has not aged. True. Treat Williams has aged more. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we finally just really got a good look at the monster we haven't seen its true form yet the thing I think is clever they give little pieces out throughout the movie you follow the bread trails but as a horror fan when I find out it's a creature feature the first thing in my mind is I want to see the monster like if I did it my way I would see the monster the first two seconds of the movie which doesn't do you any good, because then all the mystery and suspense is gone. You know what it looks like. So filmmakers are smart to draw us out and kind of give us blue balls for half the movie. But this one's even better, because we see the tentacles, we get an idea, we think we've seen it all, and then we get the true monster's form at the very end. 
Side note, uh, ooh, we just lost the captain. Originally, that was done with a puppet. And they had an animatronic tentacle that was supposed to wrap around him and yank him through that grate. And we're going to see him get broken in half and then squished through there with a physical puppet that was going to uh, basically put blood everywhere. And they actually went to the trouble of making that puppet. They did the effect. They filmed it. Everyone, accordingly, uh, according to the special effects crew, clapped on set like they didn't. They weren't used to people being that into it. And then Summers went over and said, "Yeah, that was too gross. We'll never be able to use that." And they cut ninety percent of the effect out. We we see parts of it. They put in the CGI monster eating him, so we wouldn't have to see the guy pulled through the grate as graphically. Uh, they basically just figured there was no way they could do it without getting an X rating or having the studio breathe down their back. So they they switched it up, and a really great practical effect got thrown by the wayside. Ah, oh, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's weird to think that e- like even in the late 90s, the X rating was still a fucking shadow of doom that loomed over movies like this. Well, we're pretty lucky nowadays, because fuck it, if you have an unrated film, eh, just cut it for the R and then release a new cut of the movie on DVD. Or you can re-release it later, or just put all the special deleted scenes on it, you know, as an extra feature on the movie. You can You can get away with it so much easier now than you could back in the day which is maybe a bad thing because it doesn't force filmmakers to fight for these scenes. They just get thrown in as bonus material. But that fight over rating actually has a really important place in the movie's history because they spent about a year in post-production, one, trying to make the CGI effective, and two, trying to recut for a lower rating. So those combined factors move this movie way out. Like, this could have been ready months ahead of time. But instead, they did all this extra shit. And in the meantime, the giant boat explosion happened with Titanic and Speed 2 cruise control coming out and beating this movie to the punch. Which may have removed some of the novelty of the film setting and hurt its box office. The movie did not do great at the box office. so. Why not blame Titanic and Speed 2? That's a weird thought. The 90s were so awash with boats, with boat movies. There was room for a prestige boat movie directed <laughs> by James Cameron. That was the Logan of boat adventure movies. Such a shame more people don't even know this movie exists. I'd honestly never heard of it before. You brought it up for this series, Cody. It's amazing. Like I said, I learned about this thing because they played it on TV constantly. I, If you flip to like the FX network, it was just on most afternoons. So in my mind, it's one of those things everyone knows about. So, uh, not to change the subject, but something just popped into my head. Do you agree, uh, Kevin O'Connor... Lovable Brad Dourif. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. They could play brothers. Uh, see, he's starting to get more into it. What an odd character. A very odd character. 90s adventure movies were just a genre unto itself. 
I miss the vibe of these things. Oh, for sure. I have a lot of a lot of nostalgia for late '90s, early 2000s horror flicks. I don't think we'll ever get something quite the same tone, and maybe that's what makes these special. I mean, the closest we've gotten in like pretty much since the '90s was a is a Juan's Aquaman, as far as the <laughs> whole like '90s adventure goes. Yeah. On the flip side, though, the late '90s was really an awkward time for horror. Besides the teen slasher cycle that appeared for really just a few years, like 97 through maybe 2001, that was kind of it for horror. A couple of things tried and failed, but there weren't a lot of large studio releases in that time. There was just kind of a dead decade. The, The slasher cycle of the 80s had run its course. We hadn't moved on to things like Saw or Paranormal Activity. They were an adjusting industry at the time. They didn't quite know what people wanted. Uh, so here we get a creature feature for the first time in who knows how long, and it didn't work out. Audiences didn't really want to see it, which is kind of a shame because it gave an excuse to try out big CGI and really push that art form. Yeah, this Deep Rising around. died for your sins, King <laughs> Kong. <laughs> hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um... This was around the period that J and K horror really started taking off. And the only thing the states had to show for it was we had the teen slasher period. So we were getting like Valentine and shit. Well, Valentine is still to come, (laughs) but um, that's getting a fucking Blu-ray release. It is. I have it pre-ordered. I'm excited because I've never actually seen Valentine. Oh, Valentine is so bad. You're going to love it. (laughs) <laughs> I lo- fucking love Valentine. It's just it's a movie you want to punch in the face. <laughs> I'm not sure how to feel about that, but okay. The only other thing the states had that w- they tried horror-wise was when they started remaking some of the old like Vincent Price movies and shit. That's when we started oh, getting yeah, how yeah, we, we, yeah. or just like stuff like The Haunting. We start. Yeah. We got the remake of the Haunting. We got the remake of House on Haunted Hill. Thirteen Ghosts. That's the other shit that came during that period. That was just during the period where they started to remake everything. The very beginning of the remake craze. Yeah, they were just trying to throw it fucking everything at the wall. Not just in a horror. Like late nineties, early two thousands were the apotheosis of Hollywood. We we don't really know what we're doing. So to to interrupt this thought. Underwater scenes make me so anxious. Every time one is in a movie, I feel like I have to hold my breath as long as the character to see if I oh, would you die. Do that too? Turns out you too. I would die. <laughs> I would not make it through the tunnel underwater. I, I don't know like how they're seconds. doing it. Yeah. Like I can't hold my breath that long and they're doing action on top of it. Oh, the fucking underwater scene in Rogue Nation just I just pass out. <laughs> That's like two minutes. That's insane. No. Doesn't Gives me work. a fucking heart attack. Like, oh, please save me, Rebecca Ferguson. I'm already dead in the theater, and I haven't swam anywhere. Apparently, oh, was good thing the, you uh... si- good thing you signed that death certificate. Howard Castle, what are you doing in here? Get out of here! You gotta swim <laughs> away like bats in a belfry. God, uh, watching this movie and a breathe, oh, vision. <laughs> So Wes Studi, when he was doing his underwater swimming, they were supposed to dive down, swim to a camera, and then swim past it, which he said was difficult because if they make the water warm, it's hard to film. Like, it gets foggy, apparently. 
So the water had to be very cold. He was holding his breath, swimming. And somehow there was a broken glass somewhere in the pool, and he cut his hand up swimming past the camera because he went too far deep and hit the bottom of the pool. Oof. Another reason to hate underwater filming. <laughs> really, this entire series is just a rant against the, <laughs> the sea. That's it. Fuck the sea. The seas of Vancouver. Also, going back to the monster design, I love how the end of the tentacles... I mean, as crappy as the CGI is, the fact their faces vaguely is brilliant. They get a set of mandibles inside the tentacles, which are already studded with teeth. So there's this they weird smiling face that like, vaguely looks like a face hugger. Yeah. So uh, they mention it in the movie briefly. These are based on real creatures, slightly. Uh, they're members of the Ottawa family of deep sea worms. And the idea they mentioned was that these sea worms are very tiny, microscopic, at the bottom of the ocean. But as they rise to the surface, the lack of pressure allows them to expand to gigantic size where they can take on a cruise ship, I guess. <laughs> it's as silly of an idea as you need, but why not? It's, it's very 50s an explanation in my mind. Okay, there was originally an open... You can actually read the original script to this movie online, the first, uh, <laughs> first draft of it. Uh, there was originally an opening that more, like, delved into where the fuck the monster came from and why it's so big. Which is Shockingly great. involved a lot of... Radi- it, it involved, I think, uh, Chinese nuclear tests or something. Oh, shocker. Yeah, we don't need the Godzilla route here. I'm perfectly fine just going, the sea is spooky and it's got weird shit, and That's if really you're in the middle need. of the ocean, there could be monsters. I- I'd buy into that. Why not? Also, getting eaten by a monster while swimming underwater seems about the worst way to go. I refer back to um, Anaconda. (laughs) Remember when Owen Wilson was eaten in that movie? Uh, Spoilers for Anaconda. That scared the hell out of me as a kid, just seeing like that shitty CGI version of a snake swim by the camera, and there's just the screaming imprint in his belly of Wilson. (laughs) He's like, ah, he's drowning, and also stomach acid, pressure. All, this All of my fears at once. It's no good. No boy. When, when you think about it, this movie is pretty much just Anaconda on a boat. A little bit. Yeah. Also, I, I just need to bring this up now. It's not happening yet, but Treat Williams <laughs> is about to deliver the greatest monster movie speech in cinematic <laughs> history. Bold words, Mike. There's the Deep Lucy by Samuel L. Jackson. Well, you know, his head is like a shark's fin. Now I'm waiting for the lines. But the speech is coming. God, is there anything more terrifying than there it is. Wes Studi pointing a gun at you? <laughs> the push-in, Jason Fleming and Wes Studi fucking having a standoff in the foreground. There's fire there for no There's reason fire in a pipe uh best part okay so uh anthony healed has moved over to the side <laughs> it's framed so beautifully just to be in the frame like no one told him to do that he just knew where the cameras were 
And Summers talked about this, and he laughed his ass off when he realized what was happening. He just wanted to be in the shot, so he just slightly moved over to position himself correctly. I love how even <laughs> actors who've been in lots of shit still do shit like that. Well, I can't blame him. I'm a movie star. I'm going to fill the goddamn frame with my face. Just a 10-year-old playing with a camcorder at Kmart. <laughs> I appreciate no one had to tell him to do that. Like, if I were a director, I hope I'd be smart enough to be like, hey, scoot over, you're not in the frame. He just naturally did it. <laughs> and then made that face in reaction. Again, if we did not have the toilet kill at the start of the movie, I would find this a little annoying and off-putting that the monster just found its way through the furnace. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the gas, whatever you want to call it, vent. Like, it just kind of seems silly that it could somehow fit through those tiny holes to attack this guy. But because we already know the movie's a little goofy and silly and not expecting us to take it 100% seriously, you can accept that as kind of a silly, dumb scare. And also this follow-up to that scare. No, I, I have no idea where that one came from. Like, the position of the tentacle makes it show it's like coming out of the ground. Is there some sort of drainage gate? <laughs> I guess it's a of the kitchen, shit. maybe. It was hiding them. in one of the pots. So we've touched on it before, but the creature was really designed by Rob Bottin himself. Uh, if that name is familiar to the audience, it should be. The man is probably responsible for, like, all of your favorites. Uh... He did special effects for The Thing, The Fog, Total Recall, Seven, RoboCop, Mimic, uh, The First Mission Impossible, Legend, The Howling. Like, almost directed Freddy argue. versus Jason. Yeah, almost. You can't argue with the man's credentials. Like, he knows his stuff. He also did Joffrey's death in Game of Thrones, I found out earlier, which really? is so random. I didn't know huh. that. Boy, I like the idea of... I like the idea of them being like, no, people hate this character so much. We have to get the guy. We need Botine. Bring in the specialist. He needs to Botine die. Yes. I mean, it worked. It was a satisfying death. Uh, also, Game of Thrones spoilers if you're a few seasons behind. Um, <laughs> coincidentally, they also mentioned Game of Thrones in the commentary track from Stephen Summers on this movie. Showing I still that say it that's was wrong. Papers. You can't talk about modern things over uh, ultimate 90s. And the fact that he timed it even more by saying, oh, the show's not done yet. There's like one more season. Makes it feel even weirder. Like, oh, now it's permanently trapped in amber of time. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Botin for a second. Um, also, second greatest werewolf transformation of all time. Go watch The Howling. Oh, totally. Oh, for sure. It's it's so strange because that guy has fallen off the map in terms of, like he's not on social media at all as far as I know. Nope. I was surprised uh, when you mentioned he did Game of Thrones because I didn't know he's still active. I figured he'd retired or something. Yeah, I didn't know he'd Same. done anything in like over ten years. Uh, and now an extension of all the gooey shit from before, just hundreds of skeletons. Oh, uh, it's like the inside of a pumpkin. It's uh, <laughs> no, it's let's such not go that far. Interesting idea for a monster is. 
so it can leave these entrails where it just drinks you and then just vomits <laughs> you back out. Drainage lie. Let's say you have a cadaver, and I have a cadaver, and my tentacles stretch across the boat. I drink your corpse! Well, I can't believe Stephen Summers was able to get uh, Daniel Day-Lewis out of retirement to play a sea worm. Amazing work, though. I can really see where it paid off, because direct inspiration for how we did Lincoln's stovepipe hat. Oscar. <laughs> Oh, I, I didn't get a good laugh out of that, but I'm going to stand by that as my best joke of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. That was your deep rising. Uh, that's my... I'll, I'll die on this hill, thank you. Okay, can we... I just want to take a moment to say two things. A, the original title of this film was Tentacle. B, the <laughs> title of this released film is Deep Rising. Both of these are bad titles. Yes. I like Tentacle. I feel like that matches the tone of the movie. Quite Guys, quit trying to get me to spit up my Tiffany blue sparklers. <laughs> I, I don't know. Tentac- I mean, they are being besieged by tentacles the entire time, but I think that gives the game away a little too early. Deep rising essentially means nothing, but it gives away that it's a, something rising from the deep. It's, it's so meaningless you can apply it any way you want. It's just, hey, it's going to be generic action ocean film. Well, it just Which sounds too much like a fucking Seagal movie. movie. Oh, it God, really it does. does. It does. I wonder if that's one of the things that hurt it. I would it think so. Helped. I mean, a good title is everything. That in the poster. That poster is a work of art. <laughs> <laughs> Never has there been anything more but simultaneously less evocative of the tone of a movie. Uh, so let's interrupt that thought because when Kino released this, they had like the original teaser art as the the poster cover, and then there's a reversible DVD cover. And the original art is just an incomprehensible like it looks like rushing water with like a screaming face imposed on it. Ah, uh, yes. Or it looks like a fucking it's... Jacob's Ladder sequel or something. Yeah. It's terrible. It tells you nothing about the movie. Also, I feel like this scene has been done many other times since this film, but I can't remember when it was done before this film. Where someone, the bad guy, shoots the good guy to slow him down so that he can escape. Or you sacrifice someone else for your own good. Damn oh, you, you mean Shane. every zombie movie? Exactly, yeah. That's a mainstay now. Originally, originally, uh, Kevin O'Connor was supposed to die in the film. Uh, I don't think at that point, because they would have had to go back and refilm his, his scene with West portion, later. Yeah. yeah. So at some point they decided his character should die. And at the end of the film, he rides up on the surfboard. I, I think that's where they retcon the idea like, oh, characters, uh, audiences like the character too much. Let's make him survive. But somewhere along the line, he was supposed to be eaten by the tentacle Glad they didn't do that because he's so fun. I like how they, that was the line in the sand they drew. Like, okay, one of the characters people actually like needs to, to be around. He, at the end. he got dewied. Test screening saved the man. 
Plus, it's, uh, it makes the sequel that never happened more tragic because we would have seen more of more of O'Connor. Oh, God. That's a great gag. I just want to review some... Yeah, I love that little stupid side gag. The girl from Empanita stuff. Uh... <laughs> it's something as in the line destroys me every time. Which uh, apparently was something that was just thrown in. Like he had that idea himself, and he really liked it. And he he went to somewhere. He's like, I want to I want to include this line. He had to convince him that it should be included. <laughs> Apparently, this scene was terrible to film because uh, West was just like on a table with his legs suspended behind him for like a full day of shooting to get this right. Mostly he because like stupid he's in stuff like, pain. yeah, he does an effective job convincing. Uh, he he probably was. I've never part. seen Studi make that face before. Yeah, which is hilarious because you can't see his back half, but apparently his legs were like jacked way up or something, so he was just uncomfortable for all of this filming, even though they just erased half of him. Can I just say that Wes Studi being devoured by a giant sea creature is cinema? <laughs> like, this is why we go to the movies right here. It was so convincing that when Kevin O'Connor was doing his interview for the special features, he said, I was there for the day where they filmed that scene. I can only remember him being eaten by a giant sea monster. I only remember it as I remember it from the film itself, not from filming. (laughs) Uh, The cosmic justice of the gun being out of bullets. It's so fucking good. It works. This is... I get mad when they make an asshole character in a movie, the alpha asshole, and the character dies, but they get killed off too easy. I think that's the biggest sin a monster or slasher film can do is when they make someone bad and then they just get bumped off like any old extra. Those guys got to really – exactly. They got to suffer. They've earned it. That was great. Just that moment he knows where he fucked up. He could have gotten it out easy, but instead, now he gets digested by the tentacle monster. That was smart. It was it was good character use. Nope, I know what movie this is about to turn into. <laughs> Probably the most famous part of this fucking movie. <laughs> Just <laughs> the jet skis. I'm sorry, I've been calling them jet skis. Uh, as I've learned not too long ago, uh, Summers mentions that a jet ski is something you stand on like a ski. You're standing up while you ride one. These are wave runners, which you sit down for and can hold multiple people. Uh, he also claims to know this because I should know this. I'm from the land of 10,000 lakes, which as someone who College moved to boy. Minnesota not quite two years ago, I would probably also say annoyingly at parties to people from outside of Minnesota. Fucking freaks. <laughs> We've got a lot of lakes. I guess we have wave runners? Maybe it was sarcasm because I have not seen a single wave runner in my time here. Uh, we do have many lakes, though, and a lot of people that go swimming, canoeing, kayaking. Um, that thing where you stand on top of a board and pedal your way around. I don't actually know the name of that. Paddle boarding? I don't know. Yes. Cody, it sounds like you're bragging about how many lakes you have. <laughs> we got a couple. Although I will say, depending on how you count the lakes, Wisconsin has as many, if not more. Also, who's Layla? Oh, right. That was two and a half hours ago. 
Yeah, you've lost me. If only a treat just said, Asian. Oh, oh, God. Lady with <laughs> oh, muscles. Oh, God. It was so long ago, I even forgot my own comments about the commentary. <laughs> yeah, I, I do appreciate here he's going to take off the goggles, have a single tear run down. But boy, that was so long ago. Yeah, it's There's nice. no it, way. It, it gets a moment. You you don't usually actually get this kind of moment in one of these right. movies for that for that kind of thing. But it's still so late. It's so long ago. It's it's ridiculously long. In movie terms, that's like three prequels ago. <laughs> also, the heroism. Uh, the fact he's just keep, he like wipes the tear away. You're probably thinking like, boy, he's just real sad that he lost the parts. That all, yeah, the parts are gone. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't. He's so sad West Studi betrayed him twice. Maybe that's it. It's a, it's a shame. That's one of the real shortcomings of the script, I feel. And then they'll never mention her again either. Like, he doesn't care. He's back to making wisecracks pretty much immediately. It's a shame. It, it really fucking sucks. They killed off that character and they had to do it at such an awkward time where it couldn't impact the script appropriately and then they couldn't. I don't know. I I guess if they didn't, the other way would just be icing the character. You know, we don't need to fridge the woman. None of it works. I'm mad about all of it. She should have been the lead <laughs> character. This podcast was a stupid idea. <laughs> I think we did all right on virus. The important thing is, Treat Williams is back in his fucking captain's spaceship chair. <laughs> uh, since we've already experienced. It ruined the idea that we're going to be doing a third movie in the series. The best space chair is Event Horizon space chair. Totally. Fishburne's space chair in that one is bar none the best. That fucking throne. <laughs> Suspended from the top of the ship. Ah, around. Neil, what are you doing? Look at how Archie plays this now. It's ridiculous. So again, the idea in his head is his character now enjoys being evil because he got to be truly evil for once in his life, and he just got addicted to the taste of bad. And that's why you cast a goddamn character actor as <laughs> the Chuffa villain in your overly <laughs> stuffed monster movie. Right. Why was that flirt going to shotgun? <laughs> for action flares, Cody. Can I say, I love how the monster didn't get him, he just tripped. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, literally, there's stuff under the water. That's actually how Hannibal got Chilton in the end. <laughs> he just tripped forward and fell onto a skillet. I love how mad he gets to, God damn it, I'm bad at aiming. Uh, so apparently, Anthony Hill had a really bad staph infection, uh, like in his foot while he was filming this movie and didn't realize it for a while. So at the end of the movie when all the cast was kind of like finishing their parts and they were just hanging out in Vancouver and bonding and having a good time, he was in a hospital room trying not to die from infection. <laughs> but he just had guys showing up at random hours of the day to give him in shots in his foot to, to fight the infection. Like his veins apparently were like closing down because he'd received so many shots. Oh. And he didn't get to like really hang out with anyone else on the crew. And he said he was really bummed out about that because they all seemed like such nice people. That must have been so grody too, because he would have like he would have had wet socks this right. entire shoot, like fucking jungle <laughs> rot. But yeah, he said it was bad. Like his foot was swelled way up by. Well, I mean, they filmed this all out of order, so I don't know when this was in the shoot. This could have been like the first day. 
Uh, his all wheel was the first day. Yeah, all he mentioned was his very first day of filming was uh, when he he's do the stunt where he's jumping off the boat to land on the rescue ship. That was his first day, like him doing that landing. And then he was also the last person to film. He was the first and last guy to start filming. So everyone wrapped between him. And then all of his stuff was out of order, he said, because, you know, it's a Hollywood movie. They have to do it in order of the sets. Which is apparently very difficult because his character's degradation into, like, this weird, masochistic, evil dude didn't happen in normal increments. So can I just say how much I love Treat Williams busting in like the goddamn Punisher? The greatest shot <laughs> With his weird mini-canning gun? <laughs> I appreciate the fact they didn't use a real gun. They just made up the most ridiculous one they could for this movie. I feel, I feel like he needs a BFG at this point. <laughs> it's also great he gets with their made-up gun, they could also create that sound effect so it's not just a giant assault rifle blasting away that just gets boring after a while. You can have that muted sound. Yeah. It really looks like the best gun you could get in a video game, like you level up enough or find it once on the map. Like, it charges for just a second. Oh. We just got the monster sting. You know what that means? Time, it, 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 it's time for the giant monster. My God, he's injected himself with all of it. <laughs> <laughs> with Kevin Nash as the squid. <laughs> also, I don't think we've mentioned the fact that Finnegan has a catchphrase. <laughs> yes. They were ready for this to be a franchise. Mike, could you dramatically read that catchphrase for us? What now? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was the first draft one, wasn't it? <laughs> I love how somewhere along the way they decided that the catchphrase should be slightly different than what we have so far. I love that. Just sounds like a joke someone would make making fun of Hollywood notes. <laughs> right. What I should say instead of saying no, he says yes. Yes. Summers apparently did a lot of fighting with the studio to get his vision across, and like the ideas of the actors uh, expressed, which is surprising. This scene. <laughs> you, you expect Summers to be like a yes man, but like he wanted to make this kind of jokey action film, and got pissed off when the studio said no to that. Also, uh, when they filmed the monster, they had to cheat. They couldn't figure out how to connect all those goddamn tentacles. So if you look closely, whenever they show the monster, there's normally something blocking the way the tentacles connect to its body. Or like it just kind of hints that the tentacles go down and then back up. They, they put debris around it just to hide how that all fits together because they couldn't figure the goddamn puzzle out. <laughs> so yeah, originally, I think this is where yeah. uh, Kevin O'Connor would have died. And they actually would have shown, instead of being off-screen, he'd come back and see the goo and realize what would have happened. Instead, they just cut out the monster death and went, ah, fuck it. He's in the ocean. You know it's bad because he left his hat behind. <laughs> so the amount of times Treat Williams has returned home and seen the goo. <laughs> On my ship?
And you know it's weird to think he's already battled a phantom at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how have we gone this entire commentary without bringing up that Treat Williams played one of the greatest comic book villains in movie history, <laughs> Xander Drax? It's true. Begins and ends with a letter X. Somehow also didn't mention the fact that the uh, the guys who made the monster were ILM, the big dogs. Oh. Industrial Light and Magic, yo. Not their best work. Uh, they did better. They, they've done much. This was 98. I mean, they were working on Star Wars at this time. Which, ironically, this, the, the CGI in, in Phantom Menace has a lot of the same issue. Which is yeah. a lot of detail does not look like it's there and has completely different lighting and tracking. I will say the texture doesn't look right on the monster. No. But the motion of it, the way it moves, the tentacles moves, I I think is pretty good, really. Oh, one of my favorite bits is um when Finnegan's shooting it with a shotgun, the way it's reacting to the hits is so visceral and real, like it's actually being hit. Like, that's really impressive for early CGI. No. Dead. Dead. Oh, no. Just through the skin. Now, this movie hates its villain so much. I love it. The guy's a dick. I mean, so, he has a dick. So, damn it, Chilton, die. Damn you, Night Lives. The crime to be discovered uh, uh, for the sequel. We'll get, we'll get to my pitch for what this should have been later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> the best just Get fucking watching real people ride around in wave runners is surprisingly exciting even in a movie they're not used enough in fucking action movies if you ask me like it's so corny and over the top like a wave runner no i love this i legitimately like this is fun this is this feel is like a you're good playing time. A video game it does yeah like one of those stupid arcade games where you sit in a fake wave runner inside the arcade also famke is now deaf <laughs> Can somebody please put the Halo music yeah. over the end of <laughs> Thanks for playing. So this was this was forever ago, and I wanted to point it out, but it's at the bottom of my notes, so I did, it was a dumb place to put it. Anthony Hill at one point uh, is asked, like, "What about the others?" And he just goes, "Fuck them." And any time a movie character just shouts, "Fuck them," it's hilarious. <laughs> It could be TV, it could be a movie, it could be your best friend. Anytime someone just shouts that, it's it's comedy gold. I feel like every character should have this. If Captain America could say it at some point, like, what about Tony and the other side of the Civil War? Fuck them. I would love Marvel forever. I am wondering when we're getting the first Marvel F-bomb. <laughs> we, almost got it, we almost got it with uh, Nick Fury before he disintegrated. Ant-Man it seems 3. wrong. Yeah, it seems wrong that Nick Fury wouldn't get the first one. It's an after credit scene. It would have been earned. They're saving it for Captain Marvel. <laughs> Bunch of fucking scrolls. <laughs> fucking scrolling. Oh, and the joke here that they never really illustrated was uh, he doesn't have his glasses, so he can't read what's on the screens. And he also can't see that he's about to explode. Oh, that's what <laughs> this the joke is? This is because he spends like 10 seconds pulling up like a, No, my face! 
Yeah, I never picked up on that. Yeah, that was that was supposed to be it. It never really got communicated. Yeah, you can see him squinting. It never really got communicated. He doesn't have his glasses, so he d- can't tell what the fuck he's doing. That's one of those weird, like, script moments that never gets communicated into anything else. Also, the really corny game over flash of the poker game on top of this. And the I three like second... <laughs> I like how it just comes across, like, the AI he was playing poker against decided to kill this dude. It was Man is virus. Man <laughs> is virus. Uh, you also see the uh, the surfboard that will save Kevin's character fly up in the air during that explosion. <laughs> only to be sorry. reused later. I'm sorry, I cannot stop fucking laughing. <laughs> With the wave through the explosions. This is cinema. This is what cinema is all about. Hang on! We have to jump from an explosion on this wave rider. Uh, that was the cover to my version of the DVD. That was a twofer with the puppet master. Beautiful. They added this shot of the monster dying in the explosion because audiences were confused if the monster died. They saw the ship explode. Beautiful practical explosion, by the way. Look at that oh, miniature yeah. go. But audiences were confused, like, did the monster die? I saw a boat go up. Was the monster in the boat? And they went, fuck it. Here's CGI of the monster in the explosion. And then the audience were like, oh, the monster died. It really would not be clear if he didn't have that. that And then look at that dramatic crosscut to daylight. This was all not part of the original script, from my understanding. And I've heard several different stories for the inclusion of this bit. I have one. looked at the um, original script that's online, and that and this ending is on here, but I don't know exactly uh-huh. like how late that draft is. Okay, because one of the, uh, I believe the cinematographer is talking like, "Hey, I didn't know anything about this thing. I think they shot it without me." Uh, I've heard two different stories for why it was included. One, at the time, they were looking to reboot King Kong, <laughs> and this was Summers basically throwing his pitch out to Universal to say, "Look." It's Skull Island. And he thought, like, if maybe if I get the movie, I can just tie this in, I guess. I don't know. I, I can't speak for him. Uh, that project got delayed and delayed and delayed until eventually Peter Jackson did his own version in 2005. Well, but, at the time, this was actually, like, the time Deep Rising was coming out and being made was when Jackson was working on his original version of King Kong. Um. Yeah, because that kind of died around like the end of '97. Yeah, there were it, rival kinda, projects that wanted to set it during the modern day. Yeah, they really wanted like a contemporary one too. Um, that was and Summers had been pitching it fucking constantly. He was already on the Mummy at this point, so he had to clout with it. So I think he like he was never like officially making a King Kong movie though I swear to god for this commentary I tried for a very 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 long time to figure out a way to contact Steven Summers or Steven Summers' people <laughs> to get a quote about this fucking King Kong nonsense because no one's ever really asked Summers directly about it Yeah the the other story I heard though, and this wasn't from Summers or anything. I, I believe his cinematographer mentioned um, that 
he had lined up tentatively for his next project, The Mysterious Island, a remake of The Mysterious Island. And same idea. This was his pitch, like, look, I can do Mysterious Islands. Maybe I could tie this into that movie, or it'd be kind of like a wink cameo nod to him doing that next. And then that never happened. Uh, I believe during the post-production of this, like he kind of finished this movie off while he was starting on The Mummy. So I don't know if that rumor actually pans out. It's weird. I've heard several different things about this. And because of the internet, there's all sorts of people claiming one is right and the other is right. Uh, but logistically, only one can hold true. The main purpose, I guess, here is Summers was trying to use this to tie into some other remake that never happened. And instead, we end up with a surprisingly dark and jokey ending to this movie. It's a great ending by itself, but I love how Summers also attempted to use it where the where Deep Rising becomes backstory for either Mysterious Island or fucking King Kong. Either of those are ridiculous when you I consider mean, the the lead in would be fucking Deep Rising. Deep Rising. King Kong has to fight giant space worm, uh, sea worms, sorry. And it's fucking genius. And honestly, I would be all, okay, a, a couple different points. A, I'd be all for a fucking King Kong movie starring these characters, Famke Jansen's fucking thief character oh, as yeah. the fucking Fay Ray. Like, We've already that, gone that, over. This feels a lot healed. like a 40s movie. Yeah. Why not? We have the modern-day version of a 40s cast. Why not use them? Exactly. And, fuck, that's when you want, like, you wish, like, Healed lived. And, like, they discovered, like, washed up on the island and is, like, convinced natives that he's, like, a god or something. (laughs) We have to film this, and he's got a shitty old camera. (laughs) This shit writes itself. Plus, I want to live in a world where Stephen Summers in the fucking late 90s, made a goddamn King Kong movie. That would be the tits. With the tone of the mummy. Right? That would, that would honestly, as a King Kong fan and a defender of Peter Jackson's King Kong, yeah, fuck, I, I'd be down. I don't know if I'd trade one for the other. I, a lot of people really don't like Peter Jackson's King Kong. Those people are wrong. I, I have a... a Oof, I braved a, a snowstorm to go to that. I, I forced my dad, like, we're gonna we're gonna drive to this movie. He's like, Well, you're driving. I'm like, I, I okay. I, I it was like fifteen at the time. I had my temp license. And I drove through like five inches of snow coming down just to see this movie opening weekend. <laughs> my favorite part of that was there was like this thirty year old man in the lobby afterwards and his girlfriend's like, What's wrong? And the man was clearly crying. And he's just holding his phone up to his face like, nothing. It's just about a stupid monkey. <laughs> uh, I, I, hope, I hope Peter Jackson hears that. <laughs> so I know, I know people have their problems with Peter Jackson, King Kong, but God damn it, I love that film. I, I have a lot of issues with that movie, mostly just pacing and runtime and shit but oh, yes yeah, that the end it result doesn't need to be three hours movie. long everyone has a problem with the boat i defended for a long time because statistically if you look at how long the original king kong is the ratio of boat to monster it matches up 
that still, I mean, I've realized now, does not does not explain why King Kong is three hours long. They it does really not make do not. the dialogue better. Uh, I don't need to see the captain and his fucking young ward talking about literature. I like the captain. Get to the dinosaurs. Honestly, that's more interesting than Naomi Watts and Adrian Brody having wacky romantic misunderstandings. Okay, to be fair, I have a huge crush on Naomi Watts, so like she do anything, I'd be like, no, 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 keep filming. It's fine. She was Jet Girl. She was ashamed of that movie. David Lynch, leave that poor woman alone. But yeah, Deep Rising. Deep Rising. A movie I'll go bad to bad for. It's it's in a weird limbo in my mind because I love the movie. I'll watch it pretty frequently. But I don't think I'd ever show it to a bunch of partygoers who want something to entertain them for the evening while they drink. I would do that with Deep Blue. I would do that with Black Sheep. Uh, not the Chris Farley one, if anyone's curious. The one about uh, the, the sheep that make zombies. I, I was very confused there for a moment. But, uh, They're in their own way. Oh, yeah, I love both. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if I'd show this to a party group. I don't know if they'd be into it. They, they might have some fun moments, but I don't think it would draw their attention for an hour 40. We're the kind of group you show Deep Rising to. Yeah. You can't just uh, throw that at unsuspecting people. Like, I'll turn it on. Like, I don't have anything else to watch. I'm going to watch Deep Rising because there's 10 minutes of, like, Treat Williams riding around on a, a wave runner <laughs> with tentacles. Imagine, like, Mr. Fantastic Tentacles chasing him through a cruise ship. <laughs> That's what I want. That's fun. After adjusted Billy, bye, Blur Studio. It's his own credit. I, I makes sense. That was a lot of goddamn work. That was at the time kind of a revolutionary effect. God, I love this score so much. Same Great score. You know this uh this Bopin a Tragedy trilogy, despite the name, has kind of enriched my life. <laughs> I I got to see a spectacularly bad movie a awesomely goofy movie like this and we're following this up with a movie i legitimately love now yeah it doesn't quite fit in with my original intent of the show uh the third one is good like it's actually it, the tragedy is more people don't watch it the tragedy is it's everything that went on behind the scenes <laughs> so i'm sure yeah. if you ask the director that movie is a tragedy uh, I I don't know why we're booting around the bush. I already said what the title was earlier. Uh, for that Easter egg, rewind about forty minutes. Ooh, <laughs> Make them work. That's right. Not really hard to do on a computer where you just have one click to make. But hey, we have more coming along this line, and the quality keeps improving. The drink quality might also keep improving. I'm not sure because this one was pretty legit. I hope it just goes downhill. Ah, uh, boy, after this, I've had about, like, five of these suckers. The thing is, I think we've all learned that the tragedy also has triumph. It's beautiful, Mike. Thank you, I'm just trying to make this work. Oh, uh, I was just gonna say, yeah, the movie's done, everyone go home. But now we, we have that poignant note to go out on. Folks, this has been a bop in a movie, more specifically, a bop in a tragedy. 
Thank you for joining us tonight. If you would like more box office pulp, we've got a shitload of other commentaries and regular non-commentary episodes sitting around on iTunes, Stitcher. You can contact us on Facebook. We are on Twitter. Give us a shout. Leave us a review. Uh, as the kids say, smash that like? I don't know. That felt wrong to say. But, uh, yeah, tune in for more. We appreciate it. You know, it only just occurred to me when the monster blew up, Wes Studio was probably still alive inside of it. He could have been in the sequel with no he, legs. He shows up half-digested as a god. <laughs> I'd take it. Anyways, folks, this has been Box Office Pulp. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I prefer my games real and in living color. Can we just fucking watch Street Fighter? <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> that, we haven't. That's a bop and a tragedy coming up, man. Why the fuck we didn't make I, that a bop and a tragedy? That actually makes more sense, if anything. We introduced the idea of a bop and a tragedy just being this month, but now I realize that's dumb. Why, why oh, isn't our no. whole brand just bopping a tragedy? We should just be doing those movies. We have our best commentaries out of them. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>